What up, y'all? Today's episode is extra special to me. I want to begin by reading a page of a book. It starts like this. An Invitation In this book, there is no three-step plan to help you better understand colorism, colonization, police violence, the student loan crisis, family, love, or making it in America. I'm not an Oprah or a Tony Robbins or even even Max Kendi. This book will not make you rich, solve all your problems, find you a soulmate, or fix the world. I am not an expert because I am brown. I do not speak on behalf of all brown people. That is impossible. If I carry any expertise, it is that of experience. My experience. I was born this way, in this body, and I have lived this life to the best of my abilities. I know what hurts me and what helps me. This is my book, y'all. It's called Brown Enough, and it hits the bookshelves next week, October 11th, 10 11 22, and I am so hype about it. Now, I could continue reading, but I don't want to give everything away just yet because I want you to read it yourself. Plus, you can just order the audiobook if you like the way it sounds. I want you to join me on this journey as I ask questions about where I fit in as a brown person and my own identity. Now, I'll be honest. I have always wanted to write a book, but it felt like a big task. I didn't know if I was up for it or what it would be about. Until I found a publisher who really got me, who helped me flesh out my vision and make this all happen. I am Rebecca Baruki, the founder and president of Row House Publishing, and I'm also a mother to five and a grandmother to one, which I'm really excited to say. How do you and I know each other? I'm your publisher. (laughs) And your auntie. (laughs) I want to be your auntie. You never affirm that when I say that, but... Uh, Yes, affirmations are good. You are my auntie. Auntie. You're my auntie. You Uh, said auntie. (laughs) Well, I'm from New York, so it's... (laughs) I'm from Jersey, so, you know. Rebecca is biracial, so she understands why representation matters. She says... She did not always fit in white spaces, like the publishing industry. And y'all, this industry is hella white. A 2020 study from the New York Times revealed that only 5% of the books written since 1950 were written by non-white authors. That's right, only 5%. And before this study, there was no data to show the lack of diversity in literature. Recently, we've been seeing a progressive push of previously left out voices in the literary world. But more needs to be done. Now, Row House is a special kind of publishing house on the forefront of doing this work. They are an advocate for all those voices that are being unrepresented. They are helping people make their dreams come true, just like mine. Today, Rebecca is going to tell us how she infiltrated a white industry with her progressive agenda and how Row House is shaping the publishing world to welcome new authors of various backgrounds. My name is Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough. Stories Between Black and White. Here we go, y'all. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm about to talk to a book publisher who probably grew up in a house full of books. She may have spent her childhood reading like Matilda, or maybe she was the president of a book club. But that's not the case with Rebecca. Her story might surprise you. I read somewhere that you shoplifted a book at 15. 
Yeah, I mean, I like to say because it's a good soundbite that my <laughs> spiritual journey started with petty theft. Um, I shoplifted Be Here Now by Ram Das. Oh, it's so good. What a it's book. so good. Just in case you are not familiar with Ram Das, he was a spiritual teacher, a guru of modern yoga, and a psychologist. And I highly recommend his book. I was struggling. Um, I have a long mental health history, which I believe now is really about my autism diagnosis that I got late in life and not the all the mental health, mental illness stuff that they assigned to me. Um, but I was, you know, hospitalized at eight years old. I was in and out of psychiatric group homes as an adolescent. So I was really, really struggling at that time. And I got that book. And coming from a religious household where I was taught that I have this direct connection with God and prayer is so important and, you know, no man or minister can come in between us. And I drew so much strength from that. It still felt like there was this power outside of me. And what Be Here Now did for me was it showed me that there was something inside of me. So I learned to pray inward, which became a meditation practice. And I have meditated every single day since I was 15 years old and I'm 44. And um, it saved my life many times over. So, yeah, I love that book. I've gifted it many times. Yeah, I don't know when I first, how or when I first got that book. It was in college, and I probably read it for like two years straight, mm -hmm. you know, because you could always return to it and the illustrations. It's just mm -hmm. next level, next level. Where did you steal it from? <laughs> oh, I feel so bad. So it was my mother's best friend's bookstore. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, though. If there's any book that's <laughs> that one should steal, it should be that book. You know, like, uh, it should be Be Here Now. Can I offer that all books are stealable? I say that as a publisher who sells books. Please steal your books if you don't have the money for them. Steal brown enough if... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for real. Like, I'll, I'll, make, it, I'll make it up to Chris. Don't worry. <laughs> Hey, I don't disagree with her, but also, let's hold on that idea. Let's wait for my book to at least make the bestsellers list. Please. Did your parents encourage you to read at home? They didn't. My parents were awesome people and um, not great parents. They weren't very attentive parents. So there was a lot of, uh, we, you know, I grew up in abject poverty. They worked really hard. They were both people who suffered from trauma, like unresolved, untalked about trauma. So they weren't really like around. Um, my younger sister is a voracious reader because of my neurodivergence and difficulty and, you know, different learning styles. I'll say I don't have a difficult time learning once I knew how to learn for myself. Um, so I actually am still not a big reader. I listen to a lot of books. Um, I write books, but I find it very difficult to read them. And um and yeah, they never really pushed me anyway, which was a blessing, not a curse, but, you know, I could have used a little bit more encouragement and support, but they never really pushed us to be or do anything. And they, while still offering, though, that we could be anything, I just, you know. So I have an audacity about me that I can thank my parents for because they never checked me. They never said, don't do that. You can't do that. I agree with my parents. I think about that a lot. Like, they didn't have good models of what parenting looked like. And so... They never were like, all right, you're taking piano, you're doing this, you're doing mm -hmm. this. But they also never said no. That if mm -hmm. I was like, yo, I want to do this, they were like, okay. You know, for better or for worse, they had this real, like, we say yes more than we say no attitude. But we also never pushed them to do anything. Growing up, besides Ram Dass, was there a favorite book or author mm -hmm. that really popped for you? Mm -hmm. So the summer of my eighth grade into freshman year, I was a rising freshman, my French teacher, Mr. Tapley, 
Larry Tapley, who was also a veteran, and he had, I mean, ugh, I mean, like he smoked pot with us and stuff. It was there was a lot of problematic behavior, but he was also like a really really cool mentor. He had me read, and that was in high school, not in eighth grade. Um, he had me read Soul on Ice by Eldridge oh, Cleaver. Wow. Yeah. And I read that, and I read I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. And I don't know how I was drawn to that book, but those books radicalized me. They really informed how I want to be in this world, how I want to navigate this world. And I go back to them all the time as, like, these these guiding lights um, in terms of, you know, especially because with activism, um, and, I, and, and now when there's so much— debate around how to be a good activist, like is being online, you know, a good way to activate for justice or marching or writing your senator, whatever. Like, I love that I was able to embrace the radical part of it and and understand that as valid and real and important, just as much as, you know, the peaceful narrative, um, peaceful resistance that's crammed down our throats in, uh, especially in grade school. Like, you know, when you're drawing the pictures of Martin Luther King and it was like, he was peaceful and you know, that narrative, which, I mean, he was so much more than that, but, like, yeah. So, Eldridge Cleaver, man, Black Panthers represent. I was 13 and, like, all about it. <laughs> that book is how is what led me to James Baldwin. No! I hadn't read Baldwin until I read Soul on Ice because yes. in Soul on Ice, he he has his issues with Baldwin. And he, <laughs> he talks about Baldwin a lot, yeah. you know, yeah. as a man, as a writer, as a, yeah. as a mind. Mm-hmm. Um and that is that opened the door. Like I don't know how. Again, I'm not sure how the Soul on Ice got into my life, but it did. And then I was like, "Oh, who's this Baldwin cat? He's all, mm-hmm. he's all about slash not about." Uh, and then that was like the greatest gift. So, are you saying writing a book can be activism? Absolutely. I mean, that's why I'm a publisher. I believe. Well, first of all, with with Row House, you know, my publishing company, it's. I say that the mission is as important as the books. Like, I do not shy away or make apologies for for that. Um, I'm really trying to change things here um, in community with our authors, our editors, like everybody that's involved. Like, we have, um, we are very intentionally trying to, um, and I say this a lot, disproportionately populate the shelves with marginalized voices. It's been the other way for too long. We've been hearing, you know, the white male narrative for so long that we have to swing the pendulum all the way the other way just to even chip away at disinformation that we've been learning all our lives, especially here in America, but all over the world. So books start revolutions. They started a revolution in me. And um, yeah, I think they're everything. The written word is just like, it's how we become immortal. You published your first book in 2017. (laughs) <laughs> Did you, what is that sound? You didn't. You didn't. Oh, I you didn't like it. You didn't. Uh, <laughs> no, you know what? I I I love the book. It sold thousands and thousands of copies. It true. It's called "You Have Four Minutes to Change Your Life." It's such a cheesy title, but I've always I'm good at marketing, and I knew that that would draw people in. I wanted wellness meditation. You know, my modality of how what healed me, I, I wanted that to be accessible for people. I was walking into, you know, meditation studios, yoga studios. I was a yoga teacher in New York City. Um, they were just, oh my gosh, they were just like so achingly and overly white and sterile and elitist. And I just wanted the thing that healed me to, to get to more people. So I wrote this book, but unfortunately I wrote it with a publisher 
that, um, I mean, foundationally, they just weren't about access. And it's it's so much more watered down than I wanted it to be. Still impactful. So I love the book, but it needs to be rewritten. It, so much was left out. And it wasn't in the language that my people understand um, as much. And I, I needed I need it to be that just so that the people reading the book feel safe with me. Are you going to rewrite it? Uh, I am. I am. You hear, heard it here first. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm rewriting it for my um, business partner, Kristen McGinnis's um, new house called Rise Books. So look for that. Wow. Whenever. You two are just cannot stop. She won't let me stop. Okay, can we backtrack for a sec? How'd you go from stealing a book by Ram Das to getting a publishing deal to write your first book? So what's really interesting about my first book is that while I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid, I had lost touch with that dream. And it was really, this is so important, especially on a podcast called Brown Enough. It was my ambiguity and my ease of navigating white wellness so so. I want to say well, I'm saying the word again, um, that allowed me to, <laughs> it was another white author at Hay House who I asked to be on my YouTube channel because I was doing <laughs> interviews back in the dark ages of YouTube, like before anybody else. It was so, it was so janky. They're all still up. You can watch them. Um, you can also see me jumping around in spandex because I was a fitness influencer. Um, I did this, this interview with a white wellness author who was with that publisher. And she was like, you should meet the publisher and vice president of Hay House. And me, without a proposal, waddled into that office at like six months pregnant with a one sheet about this book that I wanted to do. But I also had at that time like 120,000 YouTube subscribers. <laughs> like, So they looked at my numbers and they gave me a book deal. And that was privilege to the max. Um, so I got a book deal just because of who I knew and how popular I was. And that sucks. Influencers. People with a large number of followers are usually prioritized because of their popularity. It's not about good work. It's about what is trending or what will make fast money. This attitude is part of why Rebecca ended up going into business for herself. She wanted a fair game for everyone. Okay, so you were an author before you worked in publishing? Yes. yes. And then what was your first job in publishing? This. <laughs> Owning a publishing house. Really? So I, well, I published two books with Hay House, my former publisher. Um, they rejected a children's book that I wrote, um, a children's book about, it was very much autobiographical about a little girl named Zara who is seven years old. She um, struggles with what I call big, messy emotions. It was called Zara's Big Messy Day. Um, She's biracial. She has a black mother and a white father. Um, That's not an issue in the book. It's just a fact of life. People always ask me, like, when are you going to write about Zara being biracial? And I'm like, every book is about her being biracial. But I digress. Um, And Hay House rejected it. So I made this promise to a second grade class that I first read the book to, the manuscript to, that I would have the book published within a year, and I was going to dedicate it to them. So I was like, damn, my own publisher doesn't want it. So (laughs) I published it myself, and it blew up like a national online learning platform, the biggest in the the country, bought it, um, licensed it for their second grade curriculum. Like, people just went, like, absolutely ape over it. So— there's three more, um, 
three more books in the series. Um, Zara's Big Messy Bedtime, Playdate, Goodbye. They are definitely what I'm most proud of in terms of my work. But that introduced me to, like, what it means to publish a book. So when I left my former publisher— and I don't know if we're going to get into that, but I left them because they were racist. But when I left my former publisher— oh, yeah, you can open that door. Yeah, okay, so we'll get to that. But um, Kristen, your editor, um, my business partner, she texted me late one night, and she's like, hey, I think it's about to start your own Hay House. And I was like, sure, like, that can't be hard. But yeah, this was, this was my first introduction. Um, it was a deep dive. It gave me confidence. It showed me that I belong in rooms— I got into these rooms with these executives. I mean, these very competent, intelligent white men, right? But, like, also, I'm sitting there going, oh, you were absolutely nothing to be intimidated by. Like, <laughs> this this is what it is. So I can do this. And with that incredible confidence, Rebecca opened Row House Publishing in 2020. Her work is greatly influenced by what she saw as the unfairness of her first book deal. She didn't want authors to only be able to write books because they had 100K followers on TikTok or Instagram. She wanted to elevate important voices from all walks of life, and she has. It's just been a blast, and and the best part is just being able to be part of the magic of other people creating their books. Like, this is a miracle. This is, like, I'm holding someone's dreams in my hand, but not only that, like, I get to share this dream with someone who was, just a very short time ago in my history, a total stranger. It's just like, I don't know, it's just the most magical thing in the world. And, you know, going back to my former publisher, I don't understand how anyone could want to be a partner in art or creativity and not want all of these beautiful voices to come forward, not use that power to make that happen. Um, when I asked them, and it, it all started in 2018, my slow departure but you know I was at a I was at a conference with 40 other like up-and-coming authors top authors in the company and the leadership was there and the editors and I was one of the brownest people in the room and you know you know me in real life like I'm a very light-skinned sometimes like white presenting ambiguous really person of color so that's a problem and when I asked the CEO like while he was on stage with a microphone in his face, I said, why am I the brownest person in the room? What am I supposed to tell my people when I get out of here and they see the pictures? His response was, you need to understand, Rebecca, that we cater to an affluent audience. And that's like, well, then I don't belong here. <laughs> then I'm not your audience. So that breaks my heart. And the state of publishing breaks my heart. So, Yeah. While the publishing world may still be dominated by white publishers and authors, it's people like Rebecca who were making change and helping brown folks like me reach millions because representation matters, y'all. Now we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Rebecca will tell us how Row House is different from other publishing companies and models and how they are changing the game by allowing authors to see their true worth. Stick around. And we are back with Rebecca Baruki. Numbers can be pretty boring, but they also say something. Here's one I think says a lot. A 2019 survey from Lee and Lowe Books 
showed that 76% of the people working in the publishing industry are white. What's up with that? Books are powerful. They shape the culture we live in. And if the workforce of these companies are not diverse enough, how are the voices like mine ever supposed to be heard? Well, lucky for me, I crossed paths with Row House. Publishing is a small white world filled with a lot of trash. How is Row House's business model different? <laughs> okay. Um, I just don't want to get kicked out of the club yet. We still got to like hold <laughs> in. Um, so Row House is doing a couple things different. And, and I'll say that there have been many, 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 many awesome independent publishers, I have to say this, who have paved the way for our model. So we offer a $40,000 advance to every single author, regardless of the size of their platform. We offer the same marketing package in that we dedicate our full resources, our time, our efforts into being partners in marketing, again, no matter the size of the platform. I believe that the book should stand alone, and it's great when you have a popular person writing it, but, like, it, it's inconsequential when it comes to, like, what we, how we value the book and market it. And then every single author gets a 40% royalty share, which is about four times industry average. Um, We were told that it was impossible. We were told that we couldn't be profitable. And what we discovered, to no surprise, was that the reason people were saying that is because the distribution of wealth within publishing from, you know, the C-suite down to the editors, the authors, is just—the gap is is egregious, the pay gap. So, um, you know, I take a little less, and our authors get so much more, and I live a really good life, (laughs) you know, like I have my electrics on. Um, and I think it's just a much more beautiful thing. And it allows our authors, you know, $40,000 of some of our authors, like for real, is nothing. Like Juliet Diaz, the first author that we brought in, who was a powerhouse at Hay House and left in solidarity with me, um, she could go anywhere and get half a million dollar advance anywhere um, based on her book sales. But that royalty share for her is huge because on the back end, it's like she's just making so much more money in perpetuity. Um, but then we also have the authors that have a bigger platform and come on just because they're like, yo, this is like, they don't even want, they're like, whatever's in the contract, we don't care. Like, we're just so down for the cause, right? Like, we're just so down with it. And we make great books. Bex, can you explain to me the difference between your Row House publishing model and the traditional model? Sure. So, I mean, it's different from start to finish. It's different from the first interaction with the author. So, um, first of all, and I think this is the biggest the biggest thing that keeps um, new authors out of uh, the industry is that I would say, I mean, even indie publishers, 95% do not take proposals from unagented authors. So you have to have an agent to even get your proposal read. And we have a completely democratic process. Everyone gets to send in a proposal. We give guidelines. We give examples. I give them my book proposal that got me a deal with a major publisher, like, to look at and to model after. We offer assistance um, for people with disabilities or whatever, neurodivergence. And so all of the proposals come in. And then once you're in, I mean, with a traditional publisher, it really depends on the size of your platform, your reach, who you know. in terms of getting that advance. Um, I just had a really good friend of mine who I love very much that took a $100,000 advance to, I mean, millions. And what that, why that's a problem is because people that get the million-dollar advance don't need it, right? Like, they can hire the marketing team, and plus they're going to get extra support from the publisher, right? So they just don't need that money. It just goes into their bank. 
Um, and the people that need it most get nothing. So it, it's setting them up for failure. It's a catch-22. It's like, I have nothing. We're going to give you nothing to market this book. So how could this book possibly be successful? And as we sit here right now, Barnes & Noble, the nation's biggest you know, bookseller um, outside of Amazon, is further restricting um, how books get on their shelves. So if you are a new author with a hardcover debut, the chances of you getting into Barnes & Noble on their actual physical bookshelves is almost nil. So how are we different? We're just awesome. Like we, <laughs> I mean, the, for real, like <laughs> we care, we care about stories. We care about starting conversations. We care about the people telling them. We want them to be authentic. We want them to have real experience. Um, we love books. That's the difference. I can see though now What's really cool is that, so our sales and distribution partner is Simon & Schuster because we're no fools, and they gave us a great deal. Um, so they're out there selling our books for us. And when we go into our sales conferences, when we go and present our new titles, like, you can see the whole team. Like, first there were seven people on the call, then there was, like, 15. The last call <laughs> had, like, 30 people on it, and they're just <laughs> amped, like, by our energy. So, yeah, we, we want to be fair. We want to be equitable. It reflects in our contracts, the way we hire, the way we acquire. To an author who listens to this, mm -hmm. hasn't been published or has been published or has always been wanting to write that book, and then they go to rowhouse.com and you can submit your uh, proposal, what are the things you're looking for? Like, if, if bullet point it. What are three sure. things make you want to publish them? Okay, so I want to give them the... The correct information, you go to rowhousepublishing.com. <laughs> rowhousepublishing.com, you scroll all the way to the bottom, you hit submissions, and all the directions are there. But I will tell you, um, and I do not DM me, do not say, like, I listen to you, I love you, because I do not make these decisions. We, again, it's a democratic process, and I am not the one. There's somebody else who will remain unnamed that does the first look through. Um, we're looking for books that start conversations. We, we like books that add to conversations, but we, we want books that start them. Um, we want something we haven't seen done the way that you can do it, right? Because I don't want you to say, like, oh, it's been done and then give up. But it just, you know, it has to feel new to us. But do it. Just submit, right? Like, just do it. Don't worry about if we're going to like it or not. All right, I got to ask, what do you think made Brown Enough a good fit for Row House? I really like that you have a young voice, a passionate voice, a raw voice. Um, I mean, you know your book went through a sensitivity reader. That's something we do with all the the books at Row House. Not to make it, like, politically correct, but to make it, like, it's a, it's, it's a book that more people can feel into, right, and, and relate to and make sure it's not hurting people, right, not doing harm. So— I mean, your voice was raw and a sensitivity reader caught stuff and then you were just open to it. So I knew that also there was this openness and this hunger for growth from just reading your proposal. Um, it's just so real. I mean, I am not a man. I'm not Dominican, Colombian. I'm not from Queens. And I read the parts about like you growing up in this apartment building which just felt like so much like where I grew up, right? Like this same story, like all these different families with all these different backgrounds, just like there for each other. And I'm like, I just see myself in this story. It felt so 
It felt so accessible. That's what I want. We need new, just like like new voices, not the same old story. Um, and and the cool thing is, and also disappointing thing is, is that your story can be told by like literally a million people in New York City, right? Like it's not a rare story, um, except for like growing up and getting on TV and doing all that kind of stuff. But like, you know, it's not a rare story. So, but it's not one that's being told. And that pisses me off. It makes me want to publish the book. Like, why this this experience is shared by, like, millions of people? Why is it not? Why don't we know about this? I make art for the for the conversations that can take place afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order for artists to do that, they often need a vehicle, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think what Row House has done is create a really incredible vehicle. And I wanted to share something with you that I got a text this morning. I gave an early copy of the book to this young uh, 21-year-old photographer who, like, reached out to me and said, can I take some, I'm really inspired by you. Can I, like, can we do a photo shoot with you in the book? And this kid mm. reminded me a lot of myself, you know, at 21. He was super hungry, voracious reader. He, like, loved hip-hop. I was like, I love this kid. Like, this kid mm. is this kid is me. I get it. And he texted me this morning and he said, I just finished the last page. I'm incredibly grateful for this book. I cried, I laughed, I got angry, I got sad, I cried again, I laughed harder. I'm almost at a loss for words because it has stirred up so many emotions for me, in me. Thank you for writing this. You did amazing and I am so grateful for the transparency you show and put into the world. I hope I can live up to it. I'm gonna cry. For real, like... It's, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm, I call myself a children's book author. I say I write books for big and little people, but I really write them for little people because when, I, and I go into, when I do author visits, I'm usually, just because of the area in New Jersey I'm in, I'm usually going into predominantly Spanish-speaking um, schools with kids, um, with parents from Latin America. And they may or not may or may not even speak English at home. And so because I'm, like, ambiguous or whatever, like, I go in front of these classrooms and these kids hear me with my, like, unmistakable New Jersey accent. They see me with my curls and, you know, my light brown skin. And they, just because they see it, they know they can be it, right? Like, I don't have to give them a pep talk. I don't need to tell them that they're great or magical. It's just the representation that shows them that it can happen. And when publishers are continuously putting out books, even when they're about black and brown people and they're written by white authors, so the story, the vibe, the energy is just not authentic. When that's happening, it's like, and we don't get to see ourselves, it's genocide. It's definitely creative and emotional and mental genocide. So, like, and I just love that you see yourself. And I love that you see yourself in that 21-year-old hungry young man, you know, because that's so important, too. Thank you, Rebecca, for giving me this opportunity to share my voice and my experience with others. Thank you for helping others realize their dreams. 
You can find Row House on Instagram at rowhousepub and check out their kids' imprint, Wheat Penny Press, for awesome and inclusive books for kids. As a reminder, my book hits the bookshelves next week, y'all, October 11th. But you can pre-order the book, and you should, today on Amazon or bookshop.org. It will also be displayed at Barnes & Noble starting October 11th. But please, go ahead and pre-order the book right now. Pre-orders make or break a book's success. And if Kellyanne Conway can get 25K, your boy can get 5K. Search for Brown Enough by Christopher Rivas. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Next time on Brown Enough. What TV shows are you watching right now? Nothing Latin. (laughs) See? (laughs) We're talking TV with Claudia Foresteri screenwriter of the show Gordita Chronicles, about her journey breaking into Hollywood, the Gordita aftermath, and how the industry is failing to support Latinx artists. See you soon. Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producer Manolo Morales, senior producer Abigail Keel, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabrielle Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Brendan Burns. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. And don't forget to subscribe, y'all, or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. And if you got a minute, leave us a review. A nice one. It goes a long way. Thanks. Witness Docs from Stitcher.